Eric Landfried, welcome to the Buddy Ruski Show. Thanks for having me. Eric and I work together at Bike Durham. Uh, some of you know I've been uh, on the board of Bike Durham for about a year now, uh, working on some fun uh, transit projects. And so we'll talk a little bit about, about that later, but um, I really wanted to just spend some time getting to know Eric more. Eric has been around Durham for a little while now, uh, worked at Go Triangle for over a decade. So he is a wealth of knowledge for all things transit. Um, he's also a big Boston sports fan. Maybe that'll leak out during the conversation as well. But uh, yeah, thanks again, Eric, for, for being on the show. Uh, excited to talk to you today. Yeah, of course. I'm excited too. Um, so in our uh, pre-show call, you talked a little bit about uh, growing up in the Northeast, in the Boston area, and quickly finding this uh, affinity for maps and traveling and navigating and sort of just, um, you know, finding your way through the world. And that has uh, ultimately led to some professional decisions. Um, but really, I, I'd love to hear more about how you found that uh, affection for for just like the for traveling and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it started with uh, the love of maps. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, that uh, I, I don't really know how that got started. Um, my parents had one of those, those big National Geographic atlases. And for some reason, I was just drawn to it. I, I really liked looking up different countries or states or cities. Um, I liked drawing maps based on what I was seeing in the atlas. I would even do it in uh, the car, on car rides. I'd just grab a piece of paper. I think my, my, my mom still has a map that I drew. I think I was five at the time. And it's of the United States, and it's got, you know, all the states, all the capitals. Uh, there are some large lakes in the western part of the United States that don't actually exist. Uh, I think I got a little confused as I headed a little further west. But, um, yeah, it's always just been an interest of mine. I don't, I don't, it's just something about m the way my brain works, I guess, that uh, that, that was an interest. And so that, that led to... Uh, being very interested in, in helping to, to navigate on, on trips. We would do some car rides to the Midwest, which is where both of my parents are from, um, down south to Florida and, and, and to Europe. And, uh, yeah, that was just something that, that I'd, I'd love to do. Was that interest spurred on at all by your parents? Were they involved in any uh, industry that would garner that sort of interest in maps and navigation? No, I, it wasn't really anything that they did for work. I, I think we did travel a decent amount, uh, which was, I think, helped helped that along. Um, we went to, to Europe when I was eight and, and did a trip to, to England and France and Switzerland, and I have a lot of really fond memories of that trip. Uh, we also lived in a place where you know, very rarely needed to get around by car. Um, this was a suburb just outside of Boston. And I think for people who live in North Carolina, their view of suburbs, they're, they're, you know, the suburbs tend to be a lot newer, more car oriented. 
Uh, but in the Boston area, a lot of the suburbs are still very walkable, um, bikeable, or you can you could take the bus, or there are sometimes even subway lines that connect out to the suburbs. So where where we lived growing up uh, allowed me to basically walk or bike to all of my schools that I went to. Most of the activities that I did, uh, I could could walk to, um, and then if I wanted to get the town itself really didn't have much going on and so if I wanted to get to uh, you know go to restaurants or go see movies or whatever it is I wanted to do I I could just hop on a bus which was just a few minutes away and that would take me into Harvard Square and from there you can you know get on the subway and get to any part of the Boston area pretty much so um, that was I do think that was a big part of of the interest was you know, I'm not just being shuttled around every day in a car. It's really easy to kind of space out and, and not really know where you are. But when you have to navigate it on your own um, and, and understand a bus schedule and, and all that, I think that leads to, um, you know, being more curious, I think, about uh, exploring the, the world around you. Yeah, I wonder if, because um, when I think about other cities in the Northeast, sort of older cities throughout the United States, I feel like in some ways because they were built or some parts of the towns were built before cars, they were architected differently. And then even as cars were introduced, you still had these constraints because of the way that the places were designed. And so, you know, like a lot of, um, you know, mentioned North Carolina, I think uh, even further south, um, there and, and as you move out west, things are a little more spread out. So there's a lot more dependency on car travel. Um, but yeah, I think when you're when you don't have to be in a car, it really does sort of open up your world in a sense. You're not boxed in um, by by the vehicle. You can kind of move at your own pace in a way. There's an opportunity to stop and observe things, and so um, that w- that would certainly create this interest in like understanding the world around you and and maps and that sort of thing so uh, I can imagine where that where that comes from yeah absolutely I think that uh, that's it's really one of the maybe underappreciated downsides of of the car culture and auto dependency that we have here in the United States um, is is that loss of um, you know, connection, I think, to, to the environment, to the world around you that um, it, it just gets so uh, shut off, I think, when you're viewing everything through a windshield um, and being actually out in the elements, you know, and uh, whether that's not always pleasant, especially in the Boston area, you can get some, some pretty nasty weather, but, um, but you know, it's, it's great character. Be, yeah. Well, and it, it's just nice to be able to experience that. Uh, that's, that's just part of, of being human, I think. And, and we're, we're shutting more and more of that out. I think the way that we, we live. So, um, it was great that I was able to, you know, I had the fortune of, of growing up in a place where I could, um, do that and where it made sense to do that, right. Where it, a lot of times it was faster to be able to walk or bike somewhere or take, uh, take the subway 
than it was to drive. And so there's also just the con- convenience factor as well. Yeah, and there's a certain amount of curiosity that you have as a kid that already inspires a, this sense of adventure. And so when that is amplified by the ability to walk places, to take the bus, um, I think about for me growing up here in Durham, I've been here m- most of my life and I still don't really know street names all that well. You know, I know the major ones, but I can get you pretty much anywhere based on landmarks, based on thing, you know, other sort of things that I remember from the environment, murals that are up on, on a wall or um, particular, I don't know, trees or just things like that from walking, biking, um, even taking the bus to some extent because you're not driving, you can kind of be a little bit more observant out the window, but particularly walking and biking, um, yeah, it gives you this, it, it roots you uh, a bit more in the place that you are. And um, I, I do worry that maybe you, it's like one of those things that's being chipped away by everyone using Google Maps every day. Right. You know, you don't, you, because you never get lost, you also, you know, there there's something there, um, I think, when you have to really pay attention to where you're going. Yeah, I was actually telling my my kids the other day about um, a, a trip I'm, I went out to. I went to Europe, several different countries in Europe after grad school, and uh, one of the places I went was Venice, uh, which is of course just this incredibly beautiful place. And this was before I had a, a smartphone, um, so I just would go out every day and get lost, and it's a it's a really easy city to get to get lost in because uh, a lot of times you run into these dead ends at the canals. Um, there, there's not there are obviously some bridges and things that you can you can go over, but a lot of times I would just turn down this this pathway, uh, just you know, just getting lost, and and all of a sudden I just end up at the water, <laughs> and I have to turn around and go back and. Um, you know that experience today. I th- I think most people would would just pull out their phone and pull out a map. And you know, obviously, it's a it's a great tool. But um, you know, I think people lose that. Getting lost can be uh, it can be scary in certain situations, of course. But in a lot of circumstances, it can really be kind of liberating, and you end up seeing things that you you might not have seen otherwise. Yeah, and it also, I think about the, again, connection to your environment. If you do happen to get lost, you know, before smartphones, the thing you would do is just go ask somebody. Right. You'd say, hey, I'm trying to find such and such place, and that might connect you to somebody, you know, if you are traveling, somebody in the local town that, you know, has other things to offer. Um, and it just, yeah, it, it roots you in that sense of place. And so I think that, you know, I don't want to, I, I'm definitely not a Luddite. I, I enjoy technology, but I think that there are ways that it slowly sort of chips away at our humanity and our community. And I think that, um, yeah, that as convenient as Google Maps can be, um, I think it also strips away at that a little bit. Yeah. So you, as interested as you were in maps and traveling, um, did it become a 
career, a potential career path for you? Did you think about this as like, oh, I, you know, this is something that I would love to continue building on throughout my life or did other interests move you away from that? Yeah, I th- it, it did eventually, but I think, um, I think I resisted it a little bit at first because it's, it felt like a childish pursuit for me. You know, when it's something that you're um, really passionate about as a, as a five-year-old, right, uh, that becomes something that you kind of think, okay, that's something I did as a kid, but now I, I need to grow up and get a job and, and, and do all that. And, and I think that was a little bit of a, a barrier for me. I was thinking, you know, that's, that's like playing with matchbox cars or something, right? It's not something that, uh, that you do as an adult. Uh, so I, there were ac- occasional times when I thought, you know, it'd be great to, to write for Lonely Planet, you know, those, the travel guides or, um, I, I remember having one interview for a job. I, I really wasn't qualified for it, but it was to, uh, to, to go to, I think it was a, a bunch of countries in, in West Africa. I, I spoke I, enough French that I could probably, uh, get by. And, uh, the job was, was about, um, you know, I think it was determining different prices of things and costs of living for companies that were um, sending workers overseas and things like that. So there was a few opportunities along the way that that I think related to that, but for the most part, I I didn't didn't really pursue it until um, until after undergrad, uh, just because yeah, like I said, it, it felt felt childish to me like this is not something that a 20 something year old uh, should be doing and it's it's a weird barrier to have kind of put on myself uh, and I, I kind of wish I I hadn't put that on myself it's not like anyone else was telling me that oh you can't do that maps are for three-year-olds right that's sort of a strange concept but um it but does happen that, to a lot of us, though. Yeah. I think that even if there wasn't one person in particular that put that pressure on you, I think as we get older, we start to think about, okay, what, you know, what jobs make the most money? What jobs are the most glamorous? Um, and they uh, dilute or, um, yeah, they, they sort of get in the way of our passions in a sense. And um, it's not like now where, you know, you can grow up as a five-year-old playing video games and actually make a living right. playing video games, uh, which is like, you know, I, I missed my chance by like a decade. I was a pretty hardcore gamer back in the day. Yeah. Um, well, if, if anyone, if you can make money playing Pac-Man, I might, I might actually be, <laughs> maybe I could, I could, that could be my next career. Uh, so, yeah. So you mentioned that you strayed away from sort of maps and travel as a career. What ended up taking its place as you were going into undergrad? Well, there wasn't anything really in particular, you know, so I went to undergrad at a a very small school in Indiana called Earlham College. Uh, It's a little Quaker school. Um, Some people are familiar with it in North Carolina because Guilford College, which is in Greensboro, is a very similar school. I think they have they have similar origins. Um, But, you know, I I didn't go into to school really having any particular idea of what I wanted to major in or what I wanted to do after school. 
Uh, and that didn't really change while I was while I was in school. I mean, it was a small liberal arts school. I took a lot of different types of courses in French and sociology and music. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for, for anything. I had an absolutely amazing experience. Uh, loved every minute of it. But I still didn't have a good sense coming out of what I wanted to to do. And so, you know, I worked for a couple years back in Boston, again, at uh, Berkeley College of Music. I did you know, minor in music, so that was an interest, but it was more of just sort of an office job. It didn't really, um, wasn't really going to lead anywhere in particular. I did teach tennis a little bit in the summers um, for this program called Tenacity that offered free tennis camps to, um, That's a great to, name. to kids in Boston. It's, it was, it's solid. Uh, so, you know, and I played tennis in, in high school and college, so... You know, I was, I was still pursuing things I was interested in, but definitely nothing that was leading kind of more towards a career. And it was really once I got to, to Chapel Hill, I, I was working for the UNC School of Law. And as a staff person there, you can, um, you can take classes, courses for free at UNC, which is a really nice benefit. Uh, and I think at that point, I was thinking about, well, you know, what interests me the most, right? If I could just take any course here, what would it be? And uh, I guess I allowed myself to go back to thinking about geography and, and, and maps. So I took a couple of geography courses and, you know, one thing kind of led to another. And, and I, I came upon urban planning as, as a, um, something that, that was, you know, something that I could potentially pursue um, and looked into the program. And it, it seemed like a really good fit. Yeah, you, you mentioned not really having something that replaced maps and, and traveling as as a major passion and potential career path. And I wonder if that sense of adventure and exploration, you were exposed to so many things that finding any one particular thing was difficult to, to nail down. Because I, I think about that for myself sometimes, that I had all these interests as a kid, uh, similarly, like spent a lot of time just sort of walking, exploring. And so it was never really clear what it was that I felt really attached to. Um, I don't know if you can just speak to that at all, if, if that feels um, like maybe one of the reasons that you weren't able to or, or didn't find something to latch on to. Yeah, I th well, I think, you know, part of it is not knowing what some of those opportunities are, right? I, d I didn't know before before starting the program um, at UNC, I ended up you know getting a master's degree in city and regional planning at UNC. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't knew hardly anything about urban planning or transportation planning or what was was possible there. So it's not like many urban planners are showing up to career day at your yeah exactly. Your I mean I, I don't remember any of you know my friends their parents weren't urban planners and maybe maybe a couple of them were now you know if I look back on it but I don't remember that and 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 so I think part of it is just not having a sense of of what was what was possible necessarily and then again having this maybe resistance because of of feeling like it was a childish pursuit um you know may have contributed to that and you know part of it is I just think I was in my early 20s and uh, was a little aimless and, and trying to figure figure life out. And 
uh, I think that's a pretty natural, natural thing. And, um, but once it did, you know, once it, uh, once I came across particularly transportation planning in particular, um, I mean, it was like a switch. I mean, it's just, I, I, I couldn't believe how much it, it fit, you know, sort of what I was interested in and, and how my brain worked. And, um, you know, to this day, even if I never get another job in transportation planning, I feel like I'll always sort of be a transportation planner. It's just the way that, that my mind works. I can't shut it off if I wanted to. When did you finish at UNC? So I, I graduated there in 2007. So I've, it was about uh, 15 years ago. Yeah. I'm asking because I am thinking about the region that we live in and when some of the big changes started to happen. And I imagine being in urban planning right at the tail end of the 2000s, there was a lot of potential for, for Durham, for Raleigh, for Chapel Hill. Um, and so there must have been a decent amount of demand for urban planning and thinking about how this region was going to grow. I want to take a quick break and then talk a little bit more about uh, what you stepped into coming out of the master's program. All right, so coming out of this program at UNC, you get your master's degree in urban planning. What kind of career opportunities are you looking for once you finish that program? Is there a particular interest that you're pursuing? Is there a particular place that you're interested in living because of its uh, development potential or thinking about how the, the area is structured? Is there anything that's pulling you once you finish that program? I think the, probably the, my main interest that at that time and, and, and still today is one of, one of the big ones is in public transportation. Um, it, it was a, a field that I, you know, I knew that there were uh, some jobs available in. And so that, that is helpful as well when with things like walking and, and uh, cycling advocacy or, or, or work, the opportunities, I th I, th there are some out there, but they're a little more limited and you have to kind of find them and, and seek them out. Whereas transit agencies are all across the country. Everyone kind of knows who they are, what they are. Um, and so th that was one thing that I, th I think drew me um, in terms of where to live, that was a big question at the time. I I, uh, I mentioned earlier that I did this nine-week trip to Europe after grad school. And uh, someone that uh, I had, well, worked with, I ended up working with for, for many, many years. Uh, his name is uh, Patrick McDonough at Go Triangle. He was actually uh, sort of like the client for a transportation workshop that we did at UNC. And so I had met him when I was still in school. Um, and he was moving to a different position at Go Triangle and, you know, let me know. I mean, kind of encouraged me to apply for, for his old position. 
but then I, you know, went away for nine weeks. I thought, well, okay, that's that job's going to be filled when I get back. Um, but it was still available, and uh, I think for for me, I was initially wanting to go to maybe a larger a region, um, you know, places that have subways and, and light rail and things like that. But um, I had always been really, I guess, fascinated by Durham. I, I was living in Chapel Hill at the time, but I, I was spending more and more time in Durham. And I kind of made a, a deal with myself that, uh, uh, you know, if, if that job opportunity worked out here in this region, I really wanted to, to move to Durham and, and kind of get more involved in, in things in Durham. And, and uh, so when I was offered the, the job, I, I, I think I had sort of made peace with the idea of, of moving to somewhere bigger that already had, you know, a more robust transit system. And, and I started getting more into the idea of, uh, of working in a region where there wasn't a whole lot of, of public transportation or, or, you know, people necessarily walking and biking to, to work or to shopping or to, to their friends' houses. Um, it's a place where, you know, a small change can actually be, make a pretty big difference. Um, whereas, uh, you know, a, a small change in New York City kind of gets buried under the, the weight of the whole system. So that, that ended up being really enticing for me. So you ended up taking the position after all at, at Go Triangle. Yeah. Um, when you started there, I guess this is around 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. what was Durham's transit system like? Had they made the switch? Because I, I, whenever I think of Durham busing, I still have the data bus right. imagery imprinted in my brain because I, I took the bus a lot when I went to Durham Tech uh, for a few years. I would either ride my bike to the bus stops and put my bike on the rack or just do the bus the whole way. But I, I spent a lot of time on the data buses. So when did that switch happen, if you can remember? Yeah, well, there, so there were a couple different things that that happened. When when I first started working for Go Triangle, it was actually called Triangle Transit Authority or TTA. It then changed its name pretty soon thereafter to Triangle Transit and then later became Go Triangle. So uh, I went through two different name changes just while I was there. And when um, Tom Bonfield, who was the, the former city manager, longtime city manager here in Durham, uh, who just recently retired, he, uh, when he first got here, he, you know, I think looked at the landscape and saw that there was this regional transit agency that had a lot of, you know, planning staff and support staff uh, and f- realized that there would be some efficiencies in, in having, uh, well, again, TTA at the time or Go Triangle now start to manage the system, uh, the Durham's local system. So they, they are still two different systems the regional system and the local system. Um, but they are, you know, the planning of the bus systems uh, is bo- are both managed by, uh, by Go Triangle now. Um, and then the name switch for from Data to Go Durham happened, um, you know, a few years after that, um, that took place. Uh, so, you know, now it's Go Raleigh, Go Kerry. There was just the sort of, uh, Go family of I don't know. Carry had their own set of buses. They do, yeah, yeah. I don't know Go Carry about that used to be called uh, C Tran, if I remember, or Carry Transit, and then uh, 
Now everything's the Go brand. Is there a, around that time, was there a sense that people, because, you know, I imagine that even back then people were commuting, you know, living in Durham, commuting to Chapel Hill, living in Durham, commuting to Raleigh, and, and vice versa, any combination of that. Was there a sense that that particular uh, trend was moving upwards and so having a central system uh, in place sort of getting ahead of that trend um, did, were you seeing that like more people were looking at public transit for those cross city um, their, their cross city transportation needs yeah absolutely I mean the the fastest growing services by far when we, when I first started were the express buses between between the three cities, um, so there were express buses from from Durham to Raleigh, from Chapel Hill to Raleigh, and then um, there was a pretty decent amount of service along sort of the fifteen five one corridor between Durham and Chapel Hill, and those those were the three that really just just took off. Um, you know the the recession hit in starting in you know two thousand eight two thousand nine. And gas prices went way up, and so there was a huge spike in transit ridership, um, both local systems but also the regional system. And almost all of that was occurring um, on those more express-style trips between uh, between the the cities, but also uh, in the middle of the day, we were seeing a, a huge spike in ridership as well. Yeah. Yeah, I know all about the Robertson Scholarship bus from yeah, Duke yes. to, to Chapel Hill. I spent quite a bit of time. I was never a student at UNC, but a lot of my, uh, let's say, extracurricular activities uh, when I was at Durham Tech, because they didn't have, you know, they don't have dorms. They don't really have nightlife, so to speak. Um, and so I, I went out to Chapel Hill a lot of weekends and, and hung out with some friends there. And, and it was it was great. I could hop on the Robertson bus Thursday night, you know, I pack a, an overnight bag basically and get on the bus and head to the uh, planetarium at UNC and spend the weekend and take the bus back to be in uh, back in Durham in time for work on Sunday. So, yeah, I remember we looked at one point we looked at you know ridership kind of by day of the week by time of day, and it, I don't I'm not sure if this is the case anymore. But at one point the the bus between Chapel Hill and Raleigh, the highest ridership would be on Friday afternoons and then Monday mornings. And um, the thought, I, and we actually, you know, could see this somewhat, that it was sometimes it was students going back and forth who either um, were taking classes at, at one place or the other, but still living, you know, they might be living in Raleigh, but taking classes at UNC. Or they were, uh, you know, staying with uh, – with boyfriends or girlfriends or, or whatever kind of over the weekend and then coming back on Mondays. It's just a, a funny trend to see. Yeah, I um, and I th I'm pretty sure the Robertson bus was free. I don't know if it was if you like technically had to be a student to ride it, but um, it was a very nice amenity. I don't know that it's a, a free bus anymore, but um, yeah, grateful to the transit system for <laughs> for that for those good times. Yeah. Uh, so, so you are, are at Go Triangle thinking about sort of approaching transit um, more regionally, uh, adopting these local uh, transit systems to kind of build out a broader uh, transit map that includes not only the 
cities themselves, but traveling across cities as well. Um, while this is happening, obviously the region is changing pretty dramatically. This is sort of the, um, you know, the first wave, I guess, of growth, particularly in, in downtown Durham, but um, RTP is starting to change. Um, downtown Raleigh is also starting to grow quite a bit. Um, so how are, how are you all able to, um, or how are you approaching, I guess, the current needs of the system while also trying to get ahead of all these different um, aspects of the region that would, would certainly affect transit and transportation? Yeah, and that's it was a fine line, right? Because the um, I think the the po- the politics of uh, of transit or just or just getting around the region, you're always hearing about you know we need to to focus on the next big thing, um, and that's understandable, right? That's a it's a um, something that, you know, of course, regions need to kind of get ahead of uh, their travel needs. And and in a fast-growing region, that's something that has to be considered. But there are already so many people riding, and particularly in Durham, you know, the the local bus system carries far more people every day than than the entire regional system, um, you know, across all three counties. Uh, And that's true in, in Chapel Hill and Raleigh as well with the local the local ridership of those systems is is much higher than Go Triangle um, on a daily basis, and so you know we we also wanted to make sure that we were really concentrating on the needs of people who are already re- you know in some cases relying on transit to to get to jobs to get to um, grocery stores or whatever their daily needs. Uh, so you know the thing that I think in a lot of ways I'm, I'm most proud of in, in my career is this really early on when we were starting to manage the GoDurham system was uh, addressing a lot of the on-time performance issues that the system had. When we first started managing GoDurham, uh, the buses were running on time only about 60% of the time, which is a very, very low number, right? I mean, this is, uh, it really meant that you just couldn't count on the system to get you where you needed to go, when you needed to, to be there. Uh, you missed connections to other buses. And, um, you know, it was, it was you know, in, in, in fairly, fairly bad shape just in terms of the reliability. And I think a lot of that was because uh, the city was growing. And so the, the bus lines needed to go further and further out to serve job centers and residential areas. But there, there hadn't been... Um, kind of a recalibration of the system to look at, well, you know, at a certain point, once you just add more time to a route, uh, you know, you can't accommodate that. It's going to be running late. So you have to take a more holistic look. Uh, and that's what we did sort of in the, in the 2012, 2013 timeframe. And I imagine traffic is increasing as well. So it's not only yep. that buses are going further out, but they're also having to deal with more cars on the road, um, you know, more traffic in between those different stops. And the people that are, are taking the bus are, to your point, relying on the bus. They don't necessarily have uh, alternatives. And so uh, it is super important that the the bus is, is running on time. It is interesting. We talked a little bit about this uh, before recording that unlike some of the bigger cities where you have a mix of 
income levels, uh, you know, of, of backgrounds, professions, that sort of thing, taking public transit. In Durham, it does feel like there is a, a divide between, um, or, or a, a correlation, I should say, between um, sort of income level and who is taking the public transit here. And so I wonder, how are you all thinking about not just the efficiency of the rides, but the riders themselves? And like, how are we sort of, uh, sort of approaching um, helping that particular demographic? You know, one thing that we we really concentrated on, in, in addition to making the system more reliable, and um, you know, after we made some some initial changes, we it was up to eighty five percent on time, and so that was that was a big um, a big improvement. But was also looking at um, shortening how long people were needing to ride ride the bus, um, because one of the big discrepancies in terms of of someone who is driving in this region and someone who um, takes the bus is that it's just usually for, for most trips, it takes so much longer to, to ride the bus. Um, and so, you know, but there's, there's a difficult trade off there because the there, you know, access and speed of, of a, of a bus route um, are kind of uh, diametrically opposed, Right the faster you make a route, the less access that people have to it because you're staying on the main roads, you're not kind of ducking in and out of, of neighborhoods. And so that was, that was a big tension uh, when we were, were making large changes to the system. Not only did we need to cut time out of the routes to make them on time, but we also wanted to make them more direct so that people could get to their where they needed to go a lot faster. Um, and, but again, that, that's, that's difficult because now you're changing where the bus stops for people. And, and you know, when you talk to, to people who ride Go Durham, they talk about bus stops like they're their stops, right? This is my stop. And so taking that stop away or moving it over, even just a block, um, it is a difficult thing for a lot, of, a lot of people. And we had to be very mindful of that, especially people who have trouble walking to stops, um, that, that, you know, that, that was, that was a big change, but, um, the system had just kind of gotten unwieldy, unfortunately. And, uh, uh, you know, we had to make some, some changes in order to, to get it to be reliable and, and to get people where they need to go on time. Um, because, you know, if, if, if it takes you, you know, two hours to get, to your job and, and two hours to get back every day. I mean, just think about um, all the, th the other things that you're, you're missing, the time that you're missing with, with your kids or, or with your friends and family. Um, you know, it, it, it really limits opportunities. And, and um, we, you know, that's, that's an important thing to think about as well. Yeah, I've noticed more recently, I haven't been on the bus nearly as much as I, I used to, but uh, just seeing them buzzing around, I, I've noticed more uh, sort of variations of routes that I remember taking. So, for instance, like the three was a route that I would take a lot to get. Um, I guess it came into town from uh, the village, Holloway Street, Miami Boulevard area. And now there's like a 3A, a 3B, mm -hmm. um, same thing with, with some other stops. So you're, you're 
point about introducing more routes i'm it's uh even though i haven't been on the bus i can i can see that that how that change has happened has that been um particularly effective do you feel like that through that adjustment period although um you know there might have been some tension there do you feel like overall it has brought more um easeability to the to the system as a whole yeah i think as a whole it has there are definitely still trade-offs um particularly with the legibility of the system right when you're you're talking about a time when there really weren't a lot of route patterns there was just route three there was just route five there was just route 10 and now you know there we did introduce some different patterns and these sort of a b patterns um that that allow you to do you know to do serve more parts of of durham um and do it on time and do it reliably but it it does make the system more more complicated um and a little bit harder for people to navigate especially at first um, so that is that can be a trade-off, but um, I think overall what we saw was not only were we're seeing improvements in terms of of overall ridership and the on-time performance, but most importantly, every year we we did a, a customer satisfaction survey, you know, on board the buses, and we got to you know thousands of riders using the survey. So it was a, it was a pretty big sample size and. Um, saw some really major improvements in how people rated the system overall. Um, and so that, that to me is the ultimate, you know, kind of test of whether you're doing something, something well or not is, is what, what are the people who are using it? What do they think of it? Uh, and, and we consistently saw those scores improve over the years as the, the system, um, again, became more reliable and, and got people to where they needed to go a little bit faster. Thinking about how um, the sort of region operates within uh, the bigger sort of statewide um, political arena, I guess, how much tension did you all uh, come up against in terms of dealing with the state, whether it be funding or, you know, the having to sort of differentiate between city and state-owned roads? Like, was there any sort of, um, yeah, conflict there with dealing with the state legislature that, you know, in North Carolina historically has not been uh, as progressive towards things like alternative transit? Yeah, I, I mean... Dealing with the state legislature here in North Carolina is always always a challenge when it comes to something like public transportation. It's just not, um, you know. Obviously, there are several legislators who, for whom that's a, a, you know, they're passionate about it. They want it to see improved, but uh, th- those tend to be the legislators in places like Durham and Charlotte and and Greensboro, um, and they don't make up the majority of the legislature. I think early on when uh, when I was working at Go Triangle, it, it wasn't as much of a barrier. Uh, you know, the B- Durham, Wake County, and uh, Orange County all were able to put a half-cent sales tax on a, on a referendum. 
um, and and held those referenda, and, and those were all successful back in. So uh, Durham's was in 2011. Was the first one. Uh, they were the first county to to approve that sales tax, and we had to get permission from the you know from the legislature to even put that on the ballot. Um, so the fact that they were you know sort of open to that at the time uh, was good. They were helping to fund um, Charlotte's Blue Line, which is the light rail. Uh, line in Charlotte, both the original one and an extension that that opened a few years ago, that got you know I think twenty five percent of the funding came from the state, and so there was there was real money that was going towards towards public transportation in North Carolina, um, but you know in the last the last few years or even maybe several years, uh, I think there's been a real real shift as it moved more towards a, a you know Republican supermajority. All of a sudden, you know, any sort of transit project just seemed to um, seem to get bogged down in the politics. I feel like this is where I'm supposed to mention our own complicated history with light rail, yeah. <laughs> which is a, a whole podcast, uh, probably to itself, or a book, or a documentary. I don't, I don't know. There's so many layers to that story. Maybe all three. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it does seem like um, that is one of the tension points with any you know liberal city or liberal region in a mostly red state is that there's only so far that you can take certain initiatives um and and public transit i think for a lot of progressive areas is an important um yeah an important initiative and and so it's hard to um see certain things all the way through if if you're butting up against yeah, folks who just don't see it as a as a priority. Um, something that that I asked you about um, that I, I would love to hear you talk more about, and this sort of connects to some of the work that you're doing now. Um, you know, again, thinking about Durham being a very liberal town, um, and you know, most folks here are very uh, pro uh, taking on climate change. They're very pro. Um, you know, economic equality, sort of all those those check boxes, um, but you actually don't see a lot of folks again, sort of in certain demographics, uh, taking the bus to work or, or downtown or whatever every day. Um, and and one of the things that that you mentioned to me was that that it's actually more important to keep the system. Uh, steady for the folks who are writing it and not necessarily try to appease you know the us well-to-dos uh into taking the bus or, or changing their habits necessarily that it's it's more important to um you know keep the system up and running for those who are taking it and i'd love to hear um hear you talk a little bit more about that yeah and and i would even you know I would take it even a step above just keeping it steady is really making it an excellent system for, you know, for everybody, but, but in particular, those who, who are currently um, riding transit in Durham or in the region. Um, I think when I, you know, when I first started at, at Go Triangle, um, I kind of had the mindset that I think a lot of people still, still have in Durham, which is, um, you know, we need to attract 
these sort of you know, whiter, wealthier uh, riders to the system, that's going to grow ridership, and then that's going to grow support for um, improving the, the system overall. Uh, and it's, it's sort of an enticing notion, and in some ways it, it, it feels like it makes sense. Um, but what I've realized over the years is that, you know, that's really, that's kind of like Reaganomics, right? That's sort of like this trickle-down idea that if we make the system great for, for you know, the rich, right, that then uh, the rich will be able to s- support the, the poor or something, right? That's, that's a notion that I think is incredibly flawed. And that's kind of what, what you, you know, what you're saying when um, – if, if you're just trying to improve the system for people who aren't currently riding. And I think it can lead to some really negative outcomes because you're going to design a system that sort of meets those people's needs. Um, but those needs are not, uh, oftentimes are not the same as the needs of people who are, who are relying on transit every day. Um, and so you end up just putting so much time and effort and money into projects that almost solely benefit uh, those who are wealthier or, or, or whiter. Um, and you, you don't, you know, I, I think you're not, you wouldn't really see those benefits um, accruing to people who, um, who are currently riding the system. So in my mind, it really needs to be reversed, that, that thinking into making it an excellent system for those who are already riding because, um, you know, they're, they're the ones who, who need the service the most and who deserve to have a, a, a great system um, and who are, are, are suffering the harms of, of our transportation system that prioritizes people driving. Uh, and if you can't afford to own or maintain a car or, we, or you can't drive because of a disability or, or something else, um, you know, you're, you're sort of at the mercy of, of, of a, a transit system that still has bus stops and ditches and, um, you know, still only runs hourly at, at, in the evenings or on Sundays for a lot of routes. So um, so my mind frame is really has switched on this to thinking we need to make it an excellent system for those who are, who are riding today. Um, and, you know, yes, it would be great to attract more people to ride transit, but that is going to happen if the system is already excellent and it's going to require other changes to the region, making it denser, making parking uh, more scarce and pricier. Uh, I know that's not necessarily a popular opinion, but why do people ride transit in Boston or New York or Philadelphia? It's because they can get to a lot of places um, fairly easily because the systems are are good. They run frequently. They get people to where they want to go. And because it's a whole lot cheaper, right, than owning and maintaining a car and having to pay for parking in a downtown area. Yeah, there, there is a um, – I, I, I do wonder if, if New Yorkers think that their system is working. I mean, I <laughs> no, certainly well, no, <laughs> no one actually thinks their own system is <laughs> yeah. work, working well, but uh, I'm thinking more relative uh, to, to yeah. a place where, you know, if you only have hourly bus service, that's uh, – quite a bit lower than having a subway that runs every few minutes. I wonder if there is a, with, with car ownership there, it to me is tied to this American dream ideal that we, uh, 
have about being, you know, be, being a, a successful American citizen, you know, owning a house, driving your own car, sort of having this individualism and autonomy. Um, and yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know if I have a question there, but just I'm, I'm thinking if that gets in the way of certain people's uh, perception or ability to think about public transit as a real alternative to the habits that they've built while driving a car because it, yeah, I mean, it, it, you can't, it, you know, the people don't, uh, you know, you can't trick out your, your local bus in the way that you could put, you know, cool lights or uh, a nice speaker system in your, you know, in your Mercedes bin. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah. Th- I think there's a, there's, right, there's just a culture. It really is a car culture. I mean, you know, w- if you watch, uh, I, d- I did not watch the Super Bowl, but for people who, who did, um, w- you know, what are like half the ads are these car ads, right? And, and they show these cars like zipping through, uh, either a downtown area with no other cars on the road, <laughs> which is right. Which is unrealistic. Uh, or they're, you know, they're, they're going over mountain areas and down these dirt roads. Like, like that's something that people do every day. Um, in their $80,000. Yeah. <laughs> sports and their, car. Right. And their sports car or their giant SUV or these, you know, huge pickup trucks that are, are just, uh, are, are just ridiculous. And are, are they're now showing or, very dangerous for people walking in, uh, in, in a city. Um, these cars have gotten so big that, that it's contributing towards more people, uh, more pedestrian deaths every year. Um, but you know, people keep buying them and they're spending a lot of money. These trucks are in the 70,000, $80,000 range. Now they're spending a lot of their income on it. Um, because that's what's being sold to them as, as this American dream, and we've built our regions and our cities so that it is, you know, for most people, I don't know if I want to say the word necessary, but pretty close to necessary to to own a vehicle and have to, to drive. Um, you know, I, I think about uh, my own, f- you know, my family's situation. We own a car. Um, we do walk and bike and take transit a lot, but there are so many opportunities that would be, um, either shut off or just really, really difficult if we didn't own a car. Um, I think about like my, you know, son plays uh, little league baseball and the fields are uh, kind of out on, uh, for those who are familiar with this area, sort of Cheek Road, Junction Road, like kind of on the outskirts of the city, very much so. Um, and to get there, there's no, there's no bus out there. The, it's a two lane country road, you know, Cheek Road, um, 45 miles an hour, right? There's no way I'm biking on there with my, my nine-year-old son. Um, so, you know, if he wanted to play little league baseball and we didn't own a car, you either have to depend on rides from a friend every single time, um, taking an Uber or Lyft, right? That gets expensive and, and it's not the easiest thing to try to schedule every day. Just those type of opportunities, um, just, would be so much harder to take advantage of if we didn't own an automobile. And that's, that's pretty sad because we know that there are a lot of people in Durham who aren't able to take advantage of those opportunities 
because they can't afford or, or are unable to, to drive. Yeah. Yeah, it, w- it would really, I think, transform the city um, to start to rethink, you know, you mentioned something like restricting parking. Like, I, I do remember when, uh, you know, having worked downtown for quite a while, when paid street parking became a thing, and there it was like, oh, this is doomsday, right? you know, and, and I was definitely part of that uh, chorus of people that thought, even though I didn't even really... I mean, I guess I drive a little bit, but just it felt like, oh, here we go. Another th- another way that Durham is becoming more expensive. But I, I didn't have the um, perspective to think about how it would actually make people's lives easier or, or safer, rather, um, in terms of walkability, bikeability, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have that perspective. And um, I, I love... Uh, and of the last couple of years, um, since leaving Go Triangle, one of the projects that you have been spearheading is the transit equity campaign, which um, speaks to a lot of what we've already talked about today. So um, I'd love to um, give you some time to, to talk about that campaign um, and, and why it's important to you. Yeah, so th- this campaign was um, really born out of a desire to to really kind of increase the amount of advocacy that was was happening around uh, the Durham transit plan in particular so uh, you briefly mentioned uh, light rail and, and I agree that that's a can be a whole other uh, topic but when that project ended um, in 2019 actually it's almost exactly three years ago now uh, Th- there's still a lot of money coming in through this Durham, uh, this transit tax that, that the voters approved back in 2011. And a lot of that was being set aside for and, and actually being spent on the light rail project. Um, you heard about a little bit of that the other night when we were talking with, uh, with Bike Durham's executive director, John Talmadge, who was the, the interim project manager at the end of, uh, at the end of that project. Um, and w- so once that project ended now there was all this money that is um, unencumbered it, it doesn't have a home it doesn't have a project uh, any projects attached to it there is some money still being spent on additional bus service and bus stops and things like that but um, there was still a lot of other money that that needed to be needed to find a home essentially let me go track down my routing number real quick yeah yeah, yeah. well uh yeah just uh have it have it sent uh direct deposit to to you but um, you know, so the, the plan needs to be updated in order to say, well, how, how now are we going to spend that money in Durham County? Um, and so that plan's still in the stages of being updated. And like I said, it's been, been three years. So, um, it looks like it's going to be you know, finalized pretty soon, but you know, th- there's, there's really always these sort of three legs of, um, of kind of getting things done in, in a city, which is, You've got uh, the staff who are working on it, right? The transit staff. You've got the elected officials who get to approve the plans and sort of help shape the plans. But you have, you know, maybe the biggest leg of that that triangle is the um, is the public, and 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 they're just they're, uh, you know, I think for a lot of different reasons, which which we probably don't have time to get into. There there has not been a very um, 
consistent and, and strong advocacy scene around transit in, in Durham. Um, so I think we, we saw the need for that and uh, started, you know, Bike Durham started this, this uh, transit equity campaign, started partnering with other, um, other organizations, um, including ones like, uh, you know, the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People and uh, People's Alliance, some, some, some political uh, organizations um, to, uh, to really put uh, racial equity in particular um, at the forefront of, of that effort, um, that, um, you know, that, that equity, uh, I think has been important to the staff and the elected officials, but, um, hasn't necessarily been codified as, as the number one priority in the plan update. Yeah. And there are ways that that prioritizing that, um, really helps, uh, clarify certain decisions about where money's spent, what projects are greenlit and which ones aren't. Um, something that I know we've talked about um, at, at Bike Durham um, is thinking about, and then this was, was really interesting to me because I, I think I had been of the, you know, as an avid bike rider, I had been of the mind that like, oh, it'd be great to, uh, you know, put bike lanes in, in every neighborhood and, get, you know, people who don't normally ride their bikes, like get them a bike and, and start to um, introduce them to that lifestyle, I guess. And um, some of the things that we're uh, under beginning to understand um, that it, it sounds like you are quite familiar with um, through your time with Go Triangle now with the transit equity campaign is that, you know, people aren't really thinking about bike lanes if they don't have sidewalks. You yeah. know, if their kids can't safely walk to school every day like they don't you know they don't give a shit about bike lanes um even if they they think that they might one day be interested in biking it's not a priority for them and and it can't be a um you know that goes to your point about like trickle down and it is a very you know almost like colonizing <laughs> uh mentality to to come in and say hey yeah we're gonna you know we like doing this thing we're sure you're gonna like it so let's put these bike lanes in and um you know that has its own um, ripple effects in terms of changing the um, who's interested in a neighborhood and you know the rising cost of living um, in certain areas and so um, I, I think it's it's the right thing to do and and also the the smart thing to do to sort of put racial equity uh, at the forefront of, of any work but particularly transit where um, in Durham it is you know, mostly used by um, our non-white communities. And so um, it's it's a great campaign. Um, where can people, if they want to get involved, uh, I'm happy to send out links and everything, but uh, if, you, if someone wanted to plug in, mm -hmm. uh, where would you, where can they be most effective as a citizen? Yeah, uh, so I think the the two ways one is to to actually you know check out the the campaign website, um, actually sign on to the campaign. You can sort of join the campaign, which means that you'll get um, you know messages, uh, not not every day or anything like that. Uh, this is just an occasional kind of thing. But as there are updates to this transit plan, 
um, as the campaign puts out different position papers or um, or other types of information that we think will be helpful to people um, that will get to you. And so that is that is at um, Bike Durham's website. It's bikedurham.org uh, slash transit is, is where you can find that and sign on to the campaign. Um, and then, uh, you know, the other way is, is to actually get updates more directly from um, the transit plan update. You know, that that's happening right now, as I mentioned, and there's ways to sign up directly for updates on, on their website. And um, I don't have that URL handy, but uh, it's certainly you can link to it from from the Bike Durham site. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, I think that that's, um, you know, it's super important that folks are getting involved in their local communities in, in ways that they um, feel moved or feel passionate. Uh, I think that that's you know, especially coming out of the pandemic, um, we almost got through the whole podcast without mentioning it. <laughs> um, you know, I think folks are starting to get back out there more. And, I, you know, our communities will, um, you know, need to be rebuilt in a sense. And so finding uh, sort of campaigns like the Transit Equity Campaign are great ways to, to plug in and sort of reintroduce yourself to your community. So, yeah, I'll definitely send that out in the in the show notes when this podcast goes out. Um, thanks so much, Eric, for, for being on the show. Uh, if you're on Twitter, I know there are far less people on Twitter than <laughs> Eric and I would like to imagine. Um, but Eric uh, does really, uh, it's he's one of my favorite people to follow on, on Twitter. He's, uh, again, a wealth of knowledge, um, quite snarky, which I appreciate. Yeah, it's, uh, a, it's a pithy account, that's for <laughs> sure. Um, but, but I, I do think, you know, if you do, if you are going to, uh, doom scroll on something, I think learning a little bit more about, uh, your, your local public transit is a, a great way to spend that time. So definitely follow Eric. It's at Durham complete on Twitter. Um, yeah, definitely give him a shout out there. I got one last question for you okay. and we'll get out of here. Do you have a favorite street in Durham? Yeah, that's a good question. You, you kind of sent this to me in advance. So I had a, a little time to think about it. Uh, but I actually didn't want, I didn't want to spend too much time thinking. I just want to go with my gut reaction. Um, and you know, I, I'm going to give two, I'm going to, I'm going to prevaricate and go with two. Uh, one is, is Watts street just because that, you know, it's, that's very close to where we live. Uh, our kids go to school along Watts street and it's, it's just, you know, it's one of those it's a great street to walk or bike on. Um, it's got a lot of street trees. It's beautiful. It's got a mix of, of housing, which I really like. You've got apartments and some single family and, and uh, churches, and you just have this great mix of, of stuff. So, so Watt Street would be up there for me. So the second street is um, actually Fayetteville Street. Um, and it's actually for kind of similar reasons to Watts. Um a very different type of street, much more of a, a main street, you know, has a lot of, um, a lot more traffic, a lot of bus service, 15 minute bus service on there. But again, it's just the mix of, um, uses along it. Just, y- you get commercial areas, residential, we've got North Carolina central, um, you know, the old Hayti neighborhood. Um, and so y- you really just get this kind of whole slice of Durham I feel like if you just if you go down Fayetteville Street you know and then you get into sort of South Pointy land and 
and and all that in in southern parts of Durham, you're you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of a lot of Durham um, just by by going down that street, um, and so I, I find that really that's something I love about it is is um, it's it's really cool just to be able to go down a whole street and kind of get a sense of a, a city, and I feel like Fayetteville's is is kind of the best street to do that in Durham. Does Fayetteville eventually dead end at South Point? I've, actually, I've never actually taken Fayetteville as far as it can go because I know it does get you to the streets of South Point. But well, I suppose it eventually gets you to Fayetteville, right? That's why it was called Fayetteville Street. Uh, I think if I were calling it, it eventually sort of uh, tees into 751 okay. uh, a little bit south of, you know, closer to, to Jordan Lake is where it, officially ends but like i said it's called fayetteville street because at one point it must have gone all the way to fayetteville right roxborough went all the way to roxborough and and it becomes i'm pretty sure it becomes durham road once you get into roxborough well sure right <laughs> those those roads right the uh highway 98 used to be called uh, wake forest highway and you got chapel hill road and uh, hillsborough road right these are all ones that uh that ended in in those towns or in those cities, those were the roads to get there. And uh, so at one point, Fayetteville, Fayetteville must have gone must have gone all the way to Fayetteville. Yeah, that's that's quite a hike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again, Eric, for, for being on the show. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. I, I do enjoy uh, getting to spend time with one another doing bike Durham stuff. We definitely got to get on the basketball court at Absolutely. some point soon. Yep. Um, I, I'm not sure who your current comp would be. Um, but I'll, I'll report back for folks once Eric and I get a couple games and we'll figure out if he's more of a, a Luka Doncic, a, a Jokic, a, maybe he's LeBron. Who knows? I, you know, I've never seen him play. So we'll, uh, we'll see. But thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back soon. It's, it's good to be back at the podcast desk.